So here's where we are in our study. We've been looking at a lot of the major characters, not all of them. Um, there's a lot more names and dates and places and events that we could talk about, but I've been trying to give you kind of a broad outline of why the church looks the way it does and what instrumental events and influences cause some of those type of things. Uh, tonight we're on study number six, the age of reason and revival. Now we're getting closer and closer uh, to uh, our own country's history. And uh, we're getting to the point where we're seeing some of the things that have happened over in Europe through the Reformation and so forth, starting to come to the shores of America. Uh, we'll see more of that a little bit next week, but we're going to get a taste of it tonight when we look at some uh, individuals that actually travel uh, from Europe to America to do revival meetings, to do uh, evangelism and that type of thing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, more this evening than other things about the development of um, a new kind of outreach uh, through John and Charles Wesley. And we're still familiar with them today. Charles Wesley has written a lot of the hymns that are in the old hymn books. Uh, John Wesley was an itinerant evangelist that traveled. And so we'll be talking a little bit about his history, what influenced him, and how he kind of changed the perception of certain things uh, aside from Calvinism that we talked about that emerged out of the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and that type of thing. So to get there, what we're going to do is take a look at uh, this time period, 1648 to 1789. And uh, while we talk a little bit about the church, there are some things that are happening culturally that are very important developments here and again, it plays into a little bit of the history of our country as well. Um, this is the age of reason as well, where uh, we're going to see um, the development of the sciences. Here's the picture for tonight. Uh, here you can see the charting of uh, the world. And um, you have individuals like Copernicus and uh, Galileo and individuals that are starting to understand the universe as a whole, too. And all of this has influence upon, um, upon uh, how man looks at himself and his place within the created order. So what we're going to do tonight is to summarize from two weeks ago. We didn't have a study last Wednesday. Um, two weeks ago, these were the major turning points where in the 16th century, uh, you are turning from Roman Catholicism uh, to Protestantism. And even within Protestantism, there emerges a subdivision of four major religious traditions, Lutheranism, Reformed theology, which is Calvinism, Anabaptists, and Anglicans. And uh, so uh, this, these turning points kind of set the stage for where we're going to go tonight. Um, there's been tensions since the Reformation. Uh, between Catholics and Protestants. I think only within the last maybe 40 years uh, are we seeing a lot of those tensions die away. Um, you know, uh, when I was a kid and you think a little bit about uh, the um, kind of the 
the Catholics and Protestants not cooperating and working together and uh, that type of thing. It seems as though we're seeing uh, that change a little bit, but it has a long history behind it, and that too will take some time. So tonight, what we're going to look at is the age of reason. Another word for that is called the Enlightenment. Um, this is what's happening in Britain and France and Europe. And what happens is through the development of science, um, these leaders that come out of this era begin to question some of the traditional thinking and authority that was kind of embedded in the political and religious uh, marriage that we had seen in previous studies. But along with it came more of a denial of many of the supernatural elements of faith. So there would be doubts that would be cast upon some of the miracles that Jesus did and so forth. Uh, what we'll find is that science kind of replaces uh, faith as kind of the cornerstone of the culture. And as a result of that, uh, Christianity will begin to focus on the personal experience rather than the institution of religion. And I think what you're going to see tonight is there's more of an emphasis on personal faith, um, the idea of regeneration, the idea of a, uh, a mystical experience uh, with God, and that type of thing. Uh, I think that's the way Christianity kind of survives. Um, up to this point, where there is this uh, high authority within the church, you basically followed the lead of the papacy, the pope, the bishops, uh, those type of individuals. Now, a lot of this is uh, in your own hands uh, in determining what you're going to do. So with that comes an emphasis on religious freedom as well. And so when we think about uh, the history of our own country, Religious freedom kind of motivated some of those groups that came to the shores of America. And they came um, not to a nation that already had established Christianity as kind of the state or civic religion. Uh, so there's a lot of different arms to it in the history of our country, and it's reflected in different ways. We'll see maybe a, a, some of that in a moment. But as this idea of reason or the enlightenment um, kind of surfaces, there are questions about doctrine. And doctrine is seen as less important than what it had been during the days of the Reformation. Um, you have Martin Luther and Calvin writing long theological treatises on different elements of the faith. And what this era is suggesting is, boy, that created a pretty powerful mix where you took doctrine and faith and you mixed it in with the politics of the day and so forth. And um, you kind of developed a, a, a top-down uh, power structure. And so there is kind of an effort here to try to stretch your wings and uh, begin to develop a, your own way of looking at life, your own perspective. And there's this is a very important, important point. When you hear the term enlightenment, it's not one single thing. Um, the enlightenment is an overall spirit of the age where 
there's an emphasis on intellectualism and discovery. And with that also comes kind of the birth of secularism, a moving away from the church uh, that had been traditionally in place for hundreds of years through the Middle Ages and so forth. The concern also changes a little bit. You know, during the Reformation and during the Middle Ages, the primary concern, and you still see this in churches today, the primary concern is what about the afterlife? What happens after we die? How do we make sure that we get into heaven after we die? During this era, though, what we find is there's more of a concentration on how you can be happy in this life, not just waiting for the next life. And with that in mind, what happens is there's kind of a rebirth of looking at different components of life, and different individuals play key roles in this. Um, the meaning of the word the Renaissance basically means a rebirth. And so there is more of a rediscovering of the arts and literature and there's a lot of things that are going on that uh, produces provocative type of thinking. So here's a guy by the name of Erasmus of Rotterdam. So he kind of is not in the midst of the Renaissance prop proper. He's kind of leading into it. But he's an individual that uh, he begins to ridicule some of the monastic movements that we've already talked about. And uh, he begins to criticize even some of the religious uh, scholastics using wit and irony and um, some of his wisdom and common sense and so forth. And two of his writings is called In Praise of Folly, uh, which uh, he tongue in cheek is saying, uh, when you get too much wisdom, you're going to also up your pain level in life. The more you know, the more there is uh, to worry about and so forth. But he wrote a, a treatise called Diatri Diatribe on Free Will. Now, this was written to uh, really re uh, refute Martin Luther's uh, writings on bondage of the will. So Martin Luther wrote a treatise that said, you know, the human uh, spirit is not free. It's bound by sin. And, and what we're starting to see here through Erasmus is he's pushing back on that. And he is a contemporary of Martin Luther. And uh, while he appreciates the contributions of these church fathers and their writings, what he is doing is he wants to up the positive element of the human potential, the ability to think, and the ability uh, to reason uh, on our own. Now, with that, though, people move away from faith because they can no longer maybe hold to some of the miracles. Uh, let's face it, uh, none of us maybe have seen a resurrection or water to wine or the healing of the blind or some of the things that are there. So through reason, sometimes there's doubt and sometimes there's even a movement toward atheism because it can be more naturally explained than supernaturally explained. So does that make sense so far? Any questions that you might have? During this era, 
there are a lot of notable names that begin to surface. Copernicus, Johann Kempler, Galileo, Isaac Newton, uh, Blaise Pascal. All of these are scientists. And um, they are trying to explore a lot of the mysteries of the universe. And with that, uh, and when you marry uh, the opportunity to observe the universe uh, through the telescope and other inventions like that, uh, through calculations and stuff like that, what you'll find is that uh, the role of human reason will have a profound influence upon learning. Um, an instrumental uh, individual uh, is John Locke. Maybe you've heard of his name before. And um, he begins to minimize the importance of belief as and begin to elevate more the idea of education and reason and that type of thing. He was a Christian, but he began to embrace a thing called deism. I'll explain what that is in just a second. Um, and it is deistic thinking, really, that profoundly influenced a lot of the founding fathers of our country. Many of them uh, would consider them Christians, but not Orthodox Christians or not evangelical Christians, but deistic Christians. And like I said, I'll mention what that is in just a moment. So you have these individuals that are beginning to kind of surface and uh, different areas of the world kind of become more cosmopolitan because of the revival of the arts and and learning and intellectualism and that type of thing. And these individuals that are instrumental during this time period, uh, many of them were called the philosophy, uh, philosophies. Um, they are the ones that are kind of bringing the idea of reason to a climax, and they want to spread what knowledge they are discovering. Now, deism is a concept of God is creator, but he lets creation work out on its own through natural laws. So he creates the law of gravity, and he doesn't intervene to prevent that. So if tonight you go up on your roof and you jump off, you'll break your ankle because of gravity. God doesn't intervene and prevent those natural laws from not occurring. And so what you have, deism is more like God is a watchmaker. He creates the universe. He kind of winds it up with natural laws, and then he kind of lets it run on its own. Um, he does not need to intervene. Therefore, the miracles that are recorded in the Bible do not necessar necessarily need to be supernatural elements. Uh, they could be stories. They could be folk tales. They could be legends. They could be a lot of different things, but you don't need God intervening. You don't need Jesus to be doing miracles because the way God runs the world is he lets the, a natural law carry its course. Now, let's face it, there's a, some truth to that. Um, a lot of times th things in the world operate the way they do because of natural laws that are in place. And uh, when we think about things like hurricanes and uh, earthquakes and different things, all of these types of things are not God 
throwing thunderbolts. Uh, they're just natural laws that continue to carry itself out. However, there are individuals that will say, you know, God does intervene. And the reason I know is because he intervened in my life or someone had a very mystical or profound experience and that type of thing. So you have argument and counter argument. Does that make sense in, in this discussion that's going on? The deists um, are starting to also turn on their view of mankind. Remember during the days of Calvin uh, and the Reformation and Luther himself, um, they saw mankind as um, sinners from the day they took their first breath. Uh, we are born sinners. Um, we can't escape it. Uh, we are depraved uh, within Calvinistic theology, you have the idea, idea of total depravity. That is, there's not a, any element of our life that is not affected by uh, sin. Well, you have here uh, different individuals that are beginning to um, surface to see the potential of mankind. One of them is a guy by the name of Voltaire, and he was a critic of some of the established churches and he was disgusted of the intolerance of some of the organized Christianity. Here's one of his quotes. He says, I believe in God, but not the God of the mystics and the theologians, but the God of nature, the great geometrician, the architect of the universe, the prime mover, the unalterable, transcendental, everlasting. So a lot of big words there. But it's this idea of deism. It's the idea God creates, and then he allows things to run on its own. So does that make sense so far? Any questions, comments? So this naturally will kind of place Christianity on trial in the sense of what do you do if you were raised in a family where religion was kind of at the core of the family structure and so forth. And then you have science and you have discoveries that are going on. You have intellectualism and reason, and you have this introduction of a concept of a deistic God that is the creator, but he uses natural laws to, uh, to govern his creation. Well, Christianity would kind of uh, come up with a, a conspiracy idea that, um, you know, this is all being done to get people to turn away from the faith. And then, um, you know, there's a kind of a counter conspiracy that kind of takes place where those who were part of the Enlightenment thought that Christianity was just this plot uh, to uh, take over power and so forth. So people have been thinking like this for a long, long time. This is just an, isn't something that we hear because of the development of the internet. Um, so, uh, you know, those that were part of the Enlightenment felt that religion was kind of a scheme to exploit ignorant people. So people need to wise up, basically. And um, the intellectuals judge Christianity based upon whether it was good or evil. So in the Enlightenment, there was a drawing toward morality, doing what is right and fair and so forth. Um, and the basis of that um, 
was the idea that there's kind of this natural law that God put into place that uh, the world will work better if it's fair for everyone. So um, what happens here, up to this point, Christianity had been kind of uh, influencing the masses by saying we have the truth. But with the development of science, now there is another truth that comes into play. And what do we do with that? Do we deny it? Or how do we how do we take uh, what we can learn from science and integrate it into our faith and uh, into our lives? So there are certain individuals that try to do that. Here's a picture of Sir Isaac Newton. Um, he was a religious man, but because of science, he kind of moved away from orthodox Christianity. So one of the things Isaac Newton did is uh, he argued against the concept of the Trinity. Uh, he did argue on the basis of a creator God, and uh, yet it was kind of the concept of uh, this deist, uh, deist concept of God. God creates, but he puts all these natural laws into motion. So to kind of summarize where we've been so far, deism is maybe the best way of uh, viewing it is the belief that this supreme intelligent being set the universe and natural laws in motion, but he assumes no control over its daily activities. So when someone comes and says, why does God allow this? The answer to that is, well, God didn't cause this. He put the natural laws in motion, and this is just the way it's carried out. So uh, this viewpoint of God is more of God being uh, distant or separated from humanity, uh, rather than being close and intimate with his creation. So in the end, deism kind of um, is one that influences a lot of the scientific movement of its day. But the problem is, when deism suggested that man is much better than the Reformation outlook on the nature of mankind, um, things didn't turn out uh, better always. And so deism kind of declined because what do you do with evil in the world? What do you do with the sinfulness of mankind and how we treat each other? Um, and if they were alive today, they would be pointing right now to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and be pointing out to uh, how the Israelites, uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel rather, is treating the Palestinians and stuff. So deism kind of took a little bit of a nosedive only because you need God to intervene to make man better so that the world can become better. Uh, natural law alone will not do that. So does that make sense to everybody? So there's kind of a chart here that you can look at um, that kind of summarizes in six boxes deism's core beliefs. Uh, single creator, order, complexity of the universe, natural law, uh, God gives humanity the ability to reason and to discover and invent certain things and so forth. And yet it, um, we are to develop kind of a moral law to, to govern the world in which we live. Uh, we should be free. 
we there should not be constraints upon discovery and that type of thing. Um, and I think most importantly here is this idea, all human beings are created equal under God with the same natural rights. Doesn't that sound familiar to some of the early documents of our own country, right? All men are created equal, right? That idea. This comes right out of, out of uh, some of the deistic thoughts uh, that come to the shores of the United States in its early development. And it has an influence even upon some of the founding documents of our own country. So thoughts, comments? Now, you get pushback <laughs> on this whole idea of the enlightenment and reason from a group that is known as pietists. Um, the idea of piety is this idea of personal relationship with God. Uh, it's that idea of experience. Uh, pietists actually came out of German Lutheranism. Uh, it's a, a group that uh, said, well, the Enlightenment and reason and intellectualism still leaves a dryness in the soul of mankind. We need something more than just science. Uh, we need something that gives our life meaning and purpose and, and comfort uh, and all those type of things. So during this time period, um, while some of the traditional religious elements um, have less meaning, all of a sudden there's this movement of pietism that begins to shift a little bit from doctrinal positions and beliefs and political um, uh, political marriages that are, had taken place in the past. And it becomes more pastoral in nature in the sense of uh, the reason uh, that we are to have churches is for the care of each other uh, community, the care of each other's souls. So one of the, the emphases of uh, pietist movements is the idea of discipleship, uh, the idea of um, in the heart is where your faith becomes a reality. Uh, it's the idea that kind of leads in to the revival movement that we'll talk about in a few moments, where there's this personal experience, there's this moment uh, where there there's some definition that is given to life, um, and emotion is is much more important in this movement than reason and intellectualism and doctrinal systems and that type of thing. So this kind of begins to lead into the, a lot of the revivalistic type of emphasis on feelings. Um, and a lot of the things that will take place in churches, such as altar calls, um, things like um, music uh, that is often used as a way of, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but kind of massage people's spirits and get them ready for some type of experience with God, that type of thing. Okay, any thoughts there? If not, that leads into this idea. There begins to become an awakening uh, 
to faith, a different type of faith than the Reformation faith. It's kind of a renewal faith, a spiritual aliveness, uh, a coming to uh, the realization that uh, God is available and ready to meet us wherever we are in our life. And here's where the word evangelical starts to come in, because there is this idea of conversion that is emphasized. You need to uh, have this um, this this time where your faith becomes real to you by faith and that type of thing. And it goes all the way back to the 1700s. Uh, and there's four countries that this really kind of begins to develop. Uh, early America, Scotland, Wales, and England. And uh, there's this concern that the only way, not the only way, but the best way to appropriate the good news of the gospel is by personal faith. Now, the evangelical movement will hold on to a lot of things of the Reformation, um, and it's these things you see listed here, the sinfulness of man, the atoning death of Christ, the grace of God, and the salvation of true believers. Again, that personal element rather than organizational or institutional type of relationship. Uh, Puritanism um, kind of reflects part of that evangelical uh, influence. However, Puritanism was also trying to uh, establish a new Jerusalem, the idea of um, a covenant people that's bringing the kingdom of God to earth. So there's more of a mix of politi uh, politics with Puritanism than some of the evangelicals that were more concerned about revival movements and um, getting people saved. And so there's a little bit of difference that's going on there. But in the early history of, of the evangelical awakening, um, England was a very unlikely place when you think about this idea of national revival occurring. Remember, England uh, became Anglican, which is kind of a subset of Catholicism and that type of thing. Um, but with the Enlightenment, um, you know, a lot of religion was kind of pushed to the uh, outside, to the periphery. And now it's through certain characters, uh, very influential preachers, uh, they begin a movement of revivalism within uh, the country. And the one that does it the most is a guy by the name of John Wesley. Uh, he lived from 1703 to 1791. He himself was a pastor, but he was also the son of a pastor. And so it was in his blood. Uh, he was one of 19 children born to uh, Susanna Wesley. And she homeschooled all of them. And the way she could get it done was being very methodical, okay? She had rules and uh, ways of doing things as she schooled all of these kids. This will get into John Wesley's DNA. And that's where we'll get this idea of method or methodists. Okay, the idea of um, a way of doing something, a system that is very organized and one step that leads to another. I thought that there's an interesting thing here where 
she used to teach these kids to fear the rod and to cry softly. That was something that she said to her kids. Um, and yeah, she didn't want to be disturbed, I guess, with 19 kids and uh, cry softly. Uh, but when you begin to look at some of these things, you kind of see why Wesley was the way he was. He will be kind of um, influenced with a type of doctrinal belief that is uh, much opposite than John Calvin. And um, we'll see that in a moment. I want you to notice here some very influential moments in his life. So at the age of six, um, he was in Epworth, where their home was in the rectory there, and it caught on fire. He was up on the second floor at the time, and uh, he was uh, rescued uh, by a neighbor as uh, some of the neighbors uh, stood on each other's shoulders to get Wesley out through the window. And from that point on, Wesley called himself a brand plucked from the burning. So he saw God as intervening in his life and saving him from this tragic death uh, that uh, could have happened. Uh, he goes off to Oxford to study. At the age of 17, he becomes as an Anglican. That's uh, He was being raised in the Anglican faith. Uh, he was beginning to be alarmed about uh, the the influence of deism and how it was growing. And he and his brother Charles, who is the hymn writer, uh, assembled a band of students to begin to take religion seriously. And what he did is he drew up a method or a plan on how they could better their spiritual lives, which included uh, study, prayer, attending um, uh, communion, those type of things that are really foundational elements of the Methodist faith even to this day. Um, he is an individual that um, had the opportunity a little bit later in his life to visit Savannah, Georgia in the United States. And he thought it was going to be a great opportunity to possibly reach Native Americans. And so he comes to the United States um, and he begins to serve as a missionary uh, under uh, General James Oglethorpe. He labored uh, extensively among uh, colonists and Native Americans, and neither of them were too receptive to him. And the reason is because uh, he was a little bit too high church for the Native Americans and for some of these colonists who, some of them, uh, typical adventurer, uh, explorer type individuals, uh, they had their own vices, drinking and smoking and a lot of other things that they, they didn't want to give up. So he returns back to England and on his way back in 1736, he uh, is on a ship named Simmons. Um, oh, I, I, let me take that back. That It's on his way to the United States, not on his way back. Um, he encounters a storm 
that uh, takes place and he is very fearful for his life that uh, he would be lost An another defining moment in his life but there were some other christians that were on board that ship and they were called moravian brethren now moravians are individuals that come from an area called bohemia um, which is modern day czechoslovakia and um they are individuals that downplayed the idea of denominationalism. Their idea was in the essentials, there's unity. In the non-essential essentials, there's diversity. But in all things, charity. But Wesley observed that when they were in the middle of this storm, that they weren't fearful, that they were singing hymns to God and praising God. And uh, he... Um, he thought about that experience for a long time, and he began to reflect upon his experience in America, people being non-responsive, and to these Moravian Christians. So what happens is he gets he goes back to England, and he lands back in Eng England on February the first, seventeen thirty-eight, and he has this uncertainty about his faith now he's confused he he sees that he didn't have any success in the united states and he sees the moravian brethren that are surviving the storm with a lot of faith and assurance so he comes back and providentially he meets another moravian preacher by the name of peter bowler and um bowler begins to stress this idea of personal salvation, not institutional salvation. And so what he does is he stresses to Wesley that he needs to be reborn. And um, of course, uh, Wesley uh, will be familiar with uh, some of the reformers and what they had written. And in fact, when he was um, in 1738 in the month of May, he was reading the preface to the Epistle to the Romans commentary uh, written by Martin Luther. And uh, as he was reading the preface to that, uh, he said that he had a, a strange uh, warming of his heart. Now, if you know anything about Methodism, uh, that becomes a very important phrase that sometimes will be used within Methodist churches, this idea of the warming of the heart, that moment where assurance comes, where there had been doubt and that type of thing. So all of a sudden, Wesley now has this renewed energy because he has found assurance and his doubt has been uh, removed. And so he returns to London and he begins to preach. And all of a sudden, People are beginning to respond, and he begins hearing about some of the conversions, not where he was in the United States, but up in New England, there was a fiery preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan, that began to scare the living hell out of people that listened to him, okay, and, um, and revival occurred. On the shores of England, though, there was a, an individual 
that he became friends with, uh, who became part of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield. And um, together they began preaching about this encounter that a person can have with Christ. And uh, so this begins to uh, catch some of the momentum that kind of leads to uh, people sitting up and taking notice. And all these things are beginning to kind of uh, uh, prepare the heart for the people because they, they're coming out of uh, a strong pre-Reformation church or coming out of the Reformation era. They're coming through the Age of Enlightenment. There's a lot of different things that are moving. And here are these couple of guys that could really uh, preach eloquently. And so John Wesley takes to the road on horseback, and he will travel from village to village, and he will preach. Uh, so scholars have said that Wesley, uh, over the course of his entire life, uh, traveled over 250,000 miles on horseback into these villages to preach. So he would go and he would preach every day um, somewhere. And he would keep moving on. And by the time revival uh, meetings began to take place, uh, his brother, Charles Wesley, uh, he was the musical artist. He wrote over 7,000 hymns. 7,000. That's amazing. Um, probably some of the ones that we're most familiar with. Uh, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Uh, that song that we've uh, sung before. Um, but all of a sudden, these songs became kind of the emotional component uh, to the revivals and stuff like that. And these songs uh, were not only used in England, a lot of them were starting to make their way over to the United States as well. Uh, not just and can it be, but some of the other uh, very, um, how do I want to put it, very well-known and popular uh, songs. Some of them probably are not in, you know, some of the hymn books of other denominations, but I bet if you picked up a Methodist hymnal, you would find a lot of Charles Wesley's hymns in it. And so um, what influenced their doctrinal belief? Well, there's these Moravian Christians, but there's an individual by the name of Jacob Arminius that has a profound influence on John Wesley. And everything that we talked about in relationship to John Calvin flipped that in relationship to what Jacob Arminius uh, believed. So uh, here's a picture of Jacob Arminius. Arminius um, is an individual that developed a system of belief that became known as Arminianism. Um, and his objective in this was to try to modify the extremism of, um, of John Calvin. And so Wesley and uh, Jacob Arminius, um, they insisted that there's no such thing as unconditional, uh, you know, uh, total depravity. There's no such thing as unconditional election that God uses the free will of human beings. And uh, and everyone has a choice to accept or refuse 
uh, divine grace. So what's interesting in this is Arminius has a profound influence on Wesley. And yet at the same time, Wesley's very close friends with George Whitfield, but he is a Calvinist. So he's out of the, you know, the uh, Reformation mode of, of uh, doctrine and that type of thing. And it put a lot of stress on their friendship because they were kind of diametrically opposite in what they believed. Well, what's interesting is by the time Methodism starts to come around as a distinct denomination, you have two different kinds of Methodism. You have Arminian societies that kind of follow Wesley's line of thought where there's freedom of will, uh, there's no such thing as unconditional election and irresistible grace and all those type of things. Also, though, the fear of losing your salvation is a part of that. Remember, a part of the Calvinistic system was uh, the perseverance of the saints, that no one can lose their salvation. But the opposite of that was, you know, you can lose your salvation. So uh, there's that side that comes into it. Uh, but there's also Calvinistic societies of Methodism as well that kind of followed more of Whitfield's line of thinking. Um, so I don't know enough about uh, Methodist denomination to be able to tell you what uh, what brands of Methodism are Arminian and what are uh, Whitfield influenced, but you know they're out there just like any denomination. You have subdivisions in them. So you have some thoughts or comments uh, on any of that. So that kind of brings us now to the shores of the United States and a thing that became known as the Great Awakening. So um, with the rise of the Enlightenment, you began to pull the rug out from under people of faith. And for over 30 generations, think about that. That's a long period of time. People found meaning under God's heaven by holding on to the ideals of Orthodox Christianity. And you had generation after generation, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, that were baptized and, and uh, they were part of the Christian movement. Um, and then the Reformation, Reformation changes that a bit from Catholicism. But nonetheless, um, now this idea of the Enlightenment is beginning to put some stress and strain upon the spirit of people and they're looking for something. And there's kind of this new order of Christianity that's beginning to emerge through Wesley and Whitfield and um, revivalism and that type of thing. And so now you have these settlers that come to the United States and along with that came some of this revivalist movement. And I already mentioned a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Now he was the Puritan type. Um, and he is the individual that wrote uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm going to show you a graphic in a moment. It's, it, it's, it's quite disturbing uh, the way he preaches uh, in this. Um, I think we did a study at our home group on uh, sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, uh, that book that was written by Brian Zahn, which was kind of a counter argument to Sinners in the Hands of 
uh, an angry God. But nonetheless, so Jonathan Edwards had this very profound influence on the early settlers in the United States. And of course, the Puritan view of society was establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And so they believed the laws of God uh, were necessary so they to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So they were very legalistic. No better way to describe it than that. I mean, um, the Puritans would not have been a fun group to be around. They put a, would put a lot of stress on you. Well, Jonathan Edwards is out of that uh, mold. And um, what you find is he begins to call for conversion on the basis of personal faith rather than church membership. And, and he would use all kinds of dramatic um, scare tactics, let's put it that way, to scare people into personal faith. Well, there's no uh, better example of that than this sermon that he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here is kind of the idea of behind this sermon. Uh, the idea behind it was, um, you know, I'm going to take this down just for a second. Um, you'll see here uh, this graphic uh, where the picture is God is holding each person over the fires of hell. And unless you repent, he's going to drop you into the fires of hell and you are deserving of it. Uh, you are sentenced to eternal torture, that type of thing. And he used the idea of uh, like, a, like a spider being hung by a thread. God can let go at any minute and drop people into the fires of hell, and there's no turning back. Um, this is the type of uh, preaching uh, that... <laughs> that Edwards did. Okay. And, um, and he was very successful at it, but there's a lot of neurosis that comes along with that type of thing too. Um, when you think about the image of God, when you think about the portrait of God who wants to eternally torture people and that type of thing, well, that can leave you to, uh, despair and depression, anxiety. Um, you might have a nervous breakdown uh, if you think about that uh, for too long. And uh, so what happens is this revival movement kind of takes that approach in the early years of our country. Um, along with that, Whitfield, George Whitfield, who is a friend of John Wesley, um, he comes to the United States in 1739, and he is kind of the father of mass evangelism. So think Billy Graham and stadiums full of people, that type of event where masses of people are coming to hear uh, the preacher and to respond and so forth. He, too, would travel quite a bit. I don't think he traveled nearly as much as Wesley did, but um, he was very eloquent. He kind of had a silver tongue, and he was an individual that impressed even Benjamin Franklin, one of our early fathers. Uh, Benjamin F Franklin was a deist, 
he he was not uh, an Orthodox Christian by any means. Uh, but a lot of the revivalism that came out of early America um, was putting pressure on people to uh, make a personal decision. And um, and so you can see by some of the pictures here, you know, people covering their heart, people weeping, a lot of emotion in it. So that kind of goes back to the, the beginning of our study this evening, where feelings and emotions become more dominant than reason and thinking, thinking and so forth. So um, part of the motivation of these revivalist movements is in some ways still found in evangelical circles today, um, usually through the culture wars raised by evangelicals. Um, they've got to get everybody in line so that we can become a Christian nation again. All of this goes back to some of the early roots and history of our country. And, um, and so what you find is that now, especially over the last 10 years, um, the evangelical church has also tried to use political means to gain that power so that they could put laws into place to overturn things like Roe v. Wade, um, minimize uh, uh, civ civil rights for LGBT folks. Uh, you know, the list could go on and on. And, and so these culture wars that we currently see can also go back in history. This isn't just something that's happening now. A lot of this was inbred in the idea that the United States is a Christian nation. It was born as a Christian nation. I understand that there was a lot of Christianity and components of Christianity in the early history of our country, but we were never uh, a Christian nation in the sense of uh, a a national church or, you know, Christianity was our civil religion type thing. So, when you hear people saying that type of thing, you just got to, maybe you have to bite your tongue, I don't know, but sometimes you just have to say, uh, you got to do a little bit more reading and research on this. Well, you were not a Christian nation in the way you think it was. And I think that's the way it plays itself out. A lot of the idea of land and money um, uh, begins to take place in the early history of our uh, country as well. Um, we drove Native Americans off their lands. We kind of built this country on the back of slave labor. Uh, a lot of those components. Um, uh, Pastor Greg Boyd, uh, he pastors a church up in Minneapolis, wrote a book a number of years back that um, he took some flack for, but he does a good job in the book. Uh, I read it a number of years back. It's called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And what, is he, what he does is he goes into uh, some of the history of, of our country and he goes, you know what, you gotta, we got to rethink this a little bit. Uh, just like anything, even now, our nation is a melting pot of different types of thoughts and people and ethnicities and stuff. And that was true from the very beginning as well, so. So uh, that's what I have for us tonight. I want to know if you have any questions, uh, any thoughts that you'd like to talk about before we finish tonight.
So I threw a lot at you. I know there's a lot of names, a lot of concepts, that type of thing. But that's why I give you the uh, pretty extended notes, because if you want to go back and kind of refresh your memory, you can. So any any thoughts there? Brenda, do you mind commenting? I know you you had a lot of um, experience with the Methodist Church, right? Was it Methodism? Presbyterian. Or was it Presbyterian? I, I was... Uh... My mother was a Methodist and I was initially raised Methodist and baptized okay. Methodist, but then we moved to the Presbyterian church okay. uh, in town because uh, they had a nice youth group. And mm -hmm. so uh, I actually uh, joined the, the Presbyterian church. Okay. So I'm a little more familiar with it. Oh, okay. I, I thought I remembered you had said that you had some exposure to Methodism. I didn't know. I was going to ask you if, if some of the things we talked about tonight rung a bell, uh, maybe you're too young at the time for that. Uh, a little young, yeah. yeah. Even though I'm old, I was a little young. <laughs> well, back then, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anybody else have any comments? Um, Isn't that Edward kind of like fire and brimstone? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, just very like, much so. You know, oh, you better yeah. do this or you're going to hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Other questions? So all of this is not to confuse you. What I'm going to do uh, when we get to the end, we got three more studies. Um, all of those turning points slides that I begin with each week, I'll try to put that in one last in, um, slide, and you'll kind of see the movement all on one slide to see how, um, you know, oh, here are the turning points where a lot of things went in a different direction so all right anything else okay well thanks for being with us tonight and i hope you have a good rest of the evening good night good night, good night. Bye. Bye. thanks Bye.